Welcome to this episode of Family Law and More. My name is Bella Tate. And I'm Lisa Edmonds. And I'm Isabel Hawkins. Today we're going to be speaking about what we can learn from the recent decision of RE-T, Finding a Fact, Second Appeal 2023. The full citation will be in the show notes, which was actually a local, originally a local decision that was appealed up into the Court of Appeal. So Lisa, would you be able to just give us a little bit of a background for those that haven't read it? Yeah, of course. So This involved what I would describe a blended family of five. There was a mum and a dad. The dad had a child from a previous relationship. That child was known as T. Mum and dad then went on to have three children together and they were identified by the letters U, V and W. They were an African family who had indefinite leave to remain in the UK and back in 2021, the eldest child of that family, child T, made allegations that over a three-year period, her dad and her stepmom had been taking her to a car at night that was occupied by two family friends. And she alleged that one of those two men would kiss her and the other male would have sex with her stepmom in the back of the car while she was present. She said that the two men had threatened her with violence if she ever reported this to anyone. She did report it and that's what started public law proceedings with the court making interim care orders on the children. In terms of case management decisions, it was decided that there needed to be a finding of fact hearing and that took place some 10 months later before a deputy district judge The local authority pursued findings in line with Child T's allegations, as well as additional findings of failure to protect as against both parents. During the fact-find hearing, there was a need to adjourn. And during that period, the second child made allegations of physical abuse against the father And the local authority started to investigate those allegations. But when the fact find hearing resumed, it remained focused on the allegations that had been made by child T. With the fact find hearing concluding in July 22 and the final judgment being handed down in September of that year, the deputy district judge made the findings They are set out at paragraph 25 of the Court of Appeal judgment, if any of our listeners want to go and read that document. But in short, the judge made findings in accordance with the local authority's case. After that decision was handed down, clarity was sought by the council representing the parents. And on the back of clarity being given they each filed notices of appeal. Coincidentally, on the same date in December, the deputy district judge made final care orders, but another judge in the same family court building granted the parents permission to appeal. We then move into 2023, and in February, the appeal was heard by a circuit judge, and The circuit judge delivered an oral judgment the following day, having heard argument, and he allowed the appeal on all grounds and set aside the deputy district judge's findings. 
and went on to reserve the case to himself for a welfare determination. The court ordered that the interim care orders were to continue. On the 28th of February, the local authority filed a notice of appeal to the Court of Appeal and in short their grounds amounted to criticism that the circuit judge had failed to properly act as an appellate court and the circuit judge was wrong in how he then dealt with the consequences of his decision to set aside the findings of the deputy district judge. In short, the impact that the decision to set aside the findings had on the validity of the public law proceedings continuing. The Court of Appeal granted a stay pending determination of the permission to appeal application, keeping the interim orders and current arrangements in place. Permission was then granted and there was an extension to the stay. The parents each filed respondents' notices inviting the Court of Appeal to uphold the decision of the circuit judge and they relied on grounds amounting to flaws within the ABE interviewing process and focused on the improbability of what Child T was saying and invited the Court of Appeal to accept that the circuit judge's decision was correct. The Court of Appeal allowed the appeal and stated that whilst the circuit judge had identified the proper approach of the appellate court to the findings of fact by a court of first instance, he had unfortunately failed to follow it. So I think if the listeners went to read that judgment handed down by the Court of Appeal in May of this year, it probably teases out four issues for reflection and consideration by practitioners. The first is about how courts deal with ABE interviews when there are concerns about the quality of the interview. The second is about what we as practitioners should or shouldn't do in terms of seeking clarity on a judgment and if a decision is taken to seek clarity, the scope of that, i.e. how far can we go. Thirdly, the importance of reminding practitioners that first instance findings are only going to be interfered with by an appellate court when absolutely necessary. And fourthly, a reminder that it's wrong for judges to carry out their own investigations in relation to issues in a case, but certainly wrong for an appeal judge to do that. So I hope that's a helpful summary of what RE-T is about. And maybe, Bella and Isabel, if we touch upon the third of those four points first, so reminding ourselves as to the purpose of approaching an appellate court when there has been determinations of fact at first instance. So, yeah. Bella, what did, what did you take away from that judgment? Um, I think... One of the best things that I took away from that judgment was a quote within the judgment from at paragraph 56, if any of the practitioners are sort of reading along with us. It's um, from the original case of Phage UK Limited and Shubani UK Limited 2014. 
And it just gives quite a important and I think meaningful like piece of imagery that practitioners can carry with them in terms of thinking about what first instance judges are doing when they hear all of the evidence versus appellate court judges who are touching upon things. And I'll just read it because I think for me, it's really stuck in my mind and I think it could be useful for other practitioners. So it says, in making his decision, the trial judge will have regard to the whole sea of evidence presented to him, whereas an appellate court will only be island hopping. And I think that that is actually quoted later on in the judgment in relation to what the circuit court judge was doing. He was sort of cherry picking the elements of evidence that he wanted to consider and, and didn't have the full wealth, the full sea of evidence that the original deputy district judge had. And that was really where his decision to set aside the findings fell apart is that he needed to um, have considered the C of the evidence to be able to do that, which was really not what the appellate court was there to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it it also, I suppose, shows quite how wide reaching finding a fact powers are for judges. Absolutely. Um, And if they've undertaken an analysis there, the decision they reach or the conclusion they reach is very rarely going to be interfered with by an appellate court. It's the structure of how they considered the evidence that can be assessed rather than the actual evidence. So one person looking at it might evaluate evidence in one way. And just because an appellate court doesn't like the way that it was evaluated compared to other areas of evidence isn't a reason to overturn the findings. It has to be the structure was applied incorrectly. And I think that that's quite powerful, as you've just said, Isabel, in terms of of wide reaching elements. Okay, so maybe if we then touch on the second point to flow from Riti, which is what we as practitioners should or shouldn't do when we want to get clarity on a decision from a judge. So just to assist our listeners, a judge will provide his or her decision to us. And it may be a decision that our client isn't happy with, doesn't like and or consideration as to whether the judge's decision was wrong. And there needs to, in the first instance, be consideration as to approaching the judge to get what we call clarity. So I suppose that the start point is to ask you both what your understanding of the word clarity means. Good question. (laughs) I think it's quite hard to, you know, in the concept that we can ask for that, but then how far do we go? And are we going to be critiqued for not asking for enough? You know, that is quite a hard balance to strike. Yeah, because initially you are expected to seek some clarity before you jump straight to an appeal. But it's about striking that balance, isn't it? And I, I don't best to know what that balance is at this <laughs> stage of my career, having not done um, many appeals, but... Yeah, Lisa, I think you probably might be more appeal appeal ready than we are. So what do you think? How would you how do you strike that balance when you're considering a a judgment that you don't agree with? Yeah, well, like anything we do, it's always fact dependent. So what I'm about to say isn't a sort of hard and fast rule. But I think in my mind, I ask myself, is this an area of clarity or is it an area of challenge? And I think if I feel that it's an area of challenge because my professional judgment is the the judge has got it wrong, then I don't need to ask for clarity. I need to, you know, be brave and bold and say, Mm. okay, we're going to challenge this and go to an appellate court. And 
obviously that's a different consideration to having a client that's unhappy with the decision. Yeah. Obviously in that scenario, the judge may have got it wrong within the discretion that's afforded to him or her. And that becomes a client management exercise. I think if the client feels as though there's something missing and my assessment is asking the judge to maybe fill that gap will give the client closure and an ability to move on, then I think that would become more a clarity issue Mm -hmm. because you're not looking to do, in my, my view would be, I'm not looking to do anything further with that information other than helping and supporting my client understand the decision that's been arrived at Mm. and really sort of demonstrate the judge's workings out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think it is expected that a judge show their thinking, but it is not expected that they speak about every single piece of evidence that they've heard or seen. And that makes that element of what clarity do we seek really difficult because we might consider, or a client in particular might consider particular piece of evidence crucial and the judge doesn't mention it in their judgment. It doesn't mean they didn't think about it. But then that might be the point where you say, okay, we can ask for some clarity on that because a judge, I mean, we've all sat through very, very long judgments. You know, (laughs) we want, we expect for judges to try and be as concise as possible in their judgment to show their thinking, but not absolutely everything that they've heard. So potentially clarity, like you've just said, could come in more of a support. Or if you think that the appeal needs the clarity to then make sure you've got that challenge, then that could also that could also be part of it. But I think clarity, you know, clarity versus challenge is a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to number one of the four takeaway points, which is about how we deal with the quality of ABE interviews. So just as a reminder on this case, the deputy district judge agreed with the representations made on behalf of the parents that there were flaws within the interviewing exercise undertaken by the police where the guidance and good practice um, Mm -hmm. Both of those were departed from at times, yeah. but the judge identified that that was a question of weight yeah. within the overall picture mm-hmm. of all the other evidential jigsaw pieces. Yeah. And the Court of Appeal clearly identified and supported the deputy mm-hmm. district judge's decision making in that regard. Yeah. And then again, how the weight that was given was a decision for him. He applied the right test. The weight that was given was then a decision for that first instant trial judge. I think ABEs are so complex and almost always there's breaches. So as practitioners, what we can do is highlight those breaches and just hope that it tips the balance enough that that weight can be diminished. You know, say we're trying to challenge the finding sorts, then that's how we would have to do it. You can't you know, force the judge to place any certain weight on it in the greater picture of the puzzle, because that's their job is to put everything together in this big puzzle of evidence. I think what was most striking for me reading Reti wasn't necessarily that exercise that became the focus of appeal, because I think when you read the judgment, when we sit here and talk about it, you know, we understand the principles. Um, It's just that the circuit judge sitting as the appellate court sort of went outside of the task that that was set for him and almost sort of went into the zone of being the first instance judge and that's I think where he fell into mm-hmm. error so yeah what what really I found interesting is is 
what happens now because the deputy district judge identified that there were failings there were breaches of the guidance from memory i think the deputy district judge identified that the police officer that undertook the interview and gave evidence maybe didn't give evidence in the best way yeah. um slightly defensive and yeah. combative i think Those were the um, terms. yeah I think so. Which, okay, that, that happens, but there's, there's a learning opportunity there, isn't there, for police officers that are tasked with, no doubt, undertaking a very difficult exercise Absolutely. in terms of gathering evidence, especially from children. And that's what I would like to have a discussion about, not, not today necessarily, <laughs> but who's going to feed that back to that police officer or that the, the supervisor of that police True. officer, who's going to say... That police force maybe could do with a bit more training around that. And I think, you know, we've spoken about why we're, why some people are pushing for greater transparency from the family courts. And, you know, this is probably one of the issues I would say would fall in favour of pushing for greater transparency because we're engaging with so many key agencies um, so many different sectors come together and each of their contribution is then put under this spotlight mm-hmm. of an investigative process and sometimes people will get things wrong but we've got to learn from that and yeah. try and help and support everyone in child protection yeah. making sure it doesn't happen again and it just doesn't seem to me as though and I might be wrong somebody might email in and say well actually this is what happened on the back of that judgment and that would be really good to hear but Mm. at the moment it just sounds as though a police officer got something wrong Mm -hmm. that that hasn't helped the process that the family court um, system then had to engage with but hey-ho. Yeah I also think as part of that this term disclosure it's such a slam dunk for us as practitioners. If you see when kids are making allegations to teachers, to social workers more likely, and the social worker then calls that a disclosure, it's a very easy cross-examination point for us because we all know from the Cleveland report that that means that there's an implication that it's believed, not that it should be taken seriously and moved forward. And I do think that that term disclosure is still used widely amongst professionals in particular social workers and that is just it's quite an easy piece of feedback that just doesn't seem to be getting back to those professionals and for us as lawyers it's quite an easy it's quite an easy cross-examination point so you're, you're looking at that saying great now I've got some I've got a hook but that you know that sort of training that sort of an explanation it could easily be fed back and it doesn't seem like that's happening okay so the final point is about judges who carry out their own investigations. So on this case, the circuit judge um, did a bit of Google research and went on Google Maps. Views on that? Well, I think it just goes back to the the point that the judge in the first instance is there to analyse all of the evidence. And it's the evidence that's put before them. It's not their own evidence gathering that they've gone off and done and that is certainly not the role of the appellate court given Mm, what we've already discussed so it would be wrong for a judge of the first instance to do that as well so I I think it's it's a fair it's um, easily done though from a human perspective I can 100% see why that judge said 
oh, I'll just look on Google Maps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so from a human perspective, I can totally see why that happened. But yeah, it shouldn't. And I think it's a really helpful red flag warning for us as practitioners to be careful about doing that ourselves because, yeah. you know, there are, you know, rules, systems, protocols in place to make sure that there are fair trials and and we need to be following that. But Especially in the family court where we don't have as many rules of evidence as you do in, say, the criminal court. No, yeah. It, it's quite easy for, for lines to be blurred sometimes. The good old um, Google search. Yeah. <laughs> or even Facebook. I've had, yeah. you know, mm. professionals that come to court and, you know, they've yeah. been on Facebook. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's And, yeah, it's tricky. And, you know, I, I agree with you that the sort of human side, it's a bit like a jury. Yeah. Yeah, they get they get the direction as they're sworn in yeah. not to Google, especially yeah. if it's a high profile case. Mm-hmm. Don't Google. Can you imagine now? I bet plenty. But, of, that's such I a mean, hard thing. You know, if any, if everyone is just really honest with themselves, the probability of twelve jurors, yeah, not follow it. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, again, it's just human nature, and I'm mm-hmm. not excusing it. No. But, I think it's just a helpful warning for us to just remember to stick to yeah. structures. Yeah. But I think across the board, not just from the judiciary, but to us as practitioners, because sometimes I think we all, that detective mood does sometimes kick in and you want to be the one that finds, yeah. that finds the answer. Um, okay. Well, that was a good deep dive into Reti. Worth a read, I think, for those think so, that yeah. um, are interested. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more within the judgment as well it could be discussed but I think those are the main takeaway points all right well I think that wraps that up for re-tea um and the discussion on that but of course we're going to finish the podcast with our game of roll that dice and for any new listeners we have this little game that we play at the end of the podcast which today Lisa is going to do and we have a dice in chambers that we roll which has six games on it or six little things that we'll do and um, whatever you roll, we'll play. So, Lisa, do you want to roll that dice? Here it goes. Desert Island. Ooh, okay. So we have um, shamelessly stolen this from Desert Island Discs since our version of it. But So, Lisa, you are marooned on a desert island. You get to take with you one song, one book, and one luxury item. What are you taking with you? Okay, so I think it's got to be a, a Tina Turner song. Of course. Um, private dancer. Nice. Good. Um, and I would be lounging on my luxury mattress, oh, listening good. to <laughs> Private Dancer by Tina Turner. And my book, could it be like my notebook? Sure. But I could I have one of those books with a pen, so I'm not cheating, you know, yeah, where yeah. it slides in because I love just like making notes. And actually, I think that would be a really good place to... Free some headspace and think and oh, come yeah. up with some Great. cool ideas. So yeah, a Great. little notebook. Great. Thanks, Lisa. So please remember to leave a review and subscribe if you like what you hear. If you have any suggestions, send them to podcast at unit.law and join us next time when we will be joined by award-winning journalist Louise Tickle, who's going to be talking about transparency in the family court. See you then. Thank you.